Hello, my name is Duran Schneider, and I'm a practicing internist at Abington Memorial Hospital right out of Philadelphia. Uh, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jack Leahy uh, to discuss a case uh, that is as follows. Uh, we have a 38-year-old Caucasian male uh, who presents to his primary care doctor uh, not having seen a doctor for over uh, 10 years, presents with fatigue, thirst, and has had some recent weight loss. Uh, he has an elevated BMI at 36. His blood pressure is found to be elevated at 150 over 96, and he reports a family history of cardiovascular disease. The initial exam is otherwise unrevealing, but blood work does show an A1C of 8.6, cholesterol level up at 130, triglycerides are 350, and after that encounter, you diagnose him with type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. Uh, this patient does have insurance coverage uh, and is started on hydrochlorothiazide and lisinopril for his blood pressure, atorvastatin for his hyperlipidemia, and now remains how to uh, deal with his A1C, which is found at 8.6. First step was counseling uh, in lifestyle modification and uh, with a brief office-based counseling, you send him on his way to follow up in approximately eight weeks. Uh, three months later, uh, he does show up and his A1C is down to 8.2. Uh, and having had the trial of lifestyle therapy, the next step is to decide how best to manage his type 2 diabetes. We're presented in this case with three possible uh, options. Uh, one is monotherapy with metformin. Uh, the other is combination therapy. Uh, and number three is, is bariatric surgery. Uh, so why don't we tap that first? Initial combination therapy. So uh, this is a uh, broadly uh, written option here. Uh, and I'd like to just point out that this patient does have health insurance. Uh, and I, I think we should really um, uh, try to the extent that we can uh, consider that factor and then have a small discussion around patients that don't have health insurance as to whether that would change the uh, and, and how that changes the treatment paradigm uh, for those patients. So uh, from your perspective, there's uh, many different agents that are available now than uh, there was in the world 20 years ago. Uh, so things have only become more complicated for us uh, to, uh, uh, to to reach into that toolbox um, uh, and, and select the right combination. For, for you, with this patient who's 38, relatively healthy, does have risk factors uh, for cardiovascular disease, um, does have insurance, what's your favorite uh, thought here if you were to, to pick the initial combination therapy, having described that? Yeah, this is uh, actually, I like this case for this specific reason because what you're really looking at, we've got one option which is to start with one drug and one option which is to start with more than one drug. And, and, and this is actually a big discussion point in this diabetes world, in part reflecting different kinds of guidelines. And so if people are familiar with guidelines, they can actually see the battle that's kind of going on between different groups in that the classic American Diabetes Association and European Equivalent Guidelines, which came to us uh, towards the middle of last year, recommend starting with one drug, i.e. metformin, and then if you're not controlled, escalating as you need to through all the other drugs we have. The second kind of guidelines are from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, the ACE guidelines, and they actually, new ones just came out uh, the last couple of weeks. They have very much focused on feeling we should start therapy from the get-go. 
that has a real chance of success and trying to avoid the inertia of one drug being started that's not working but not maybe not um, um, intensifying or patients get lost or whatever it happens to be. So the concept of starting one and then going further may not always you know, work the way we would like. So why not start a therapy from the get-go that has a real chance of working and their feeling is the hemoglobin A1C up to 7.5. You, you know, you can make a strong argument lifestyle plus metformin is a very reasonable approach. But 7.5 to 9, they more or less argue it's probably preferable to think about lifestyle with two drugs. Uh, and the two drugs probably is easiest from many perspectives if it's in a combination tablet, especially given that we have some pretty good combination tablets now. I actually like the second thought process. And, and when you raise the issue of, well, it's written, isn't that interesting? It says he has insurance. Isn't that kind of a curious statement? Well, it's not so curious because our favorite combinations potentially is metformin, which clearly is inexpensive, but along with a DPP-4 inhibitor, the oral incretin drug, those combinations are out there. They've been studied as monotherapy versus combination therapy, head-to-head, you know, what do you, what do you see in patients with new onset type 2 diabetes? And the reality is that the combination tablets are much more effective at improving levels of hemoglobin A1C than the individual drugs. And I have a favorite study I love where the first author is Barry Goldstein, which is, um, uh, which is patients with new onset type 2 diabetes, hemoglobin A1C of 8.8, and looking at DPP-4 inhibitor alone, metformin alone, or a combination product. And the combination product was much, much superior, taking that A1C of 8.8 and getting it to goal when you use the combination product, the individual drugs didn't. So that's sort of the thought process, and our patient falls really into exactly into that window of argument. He started at 8.6, now he's 8.3, and the real discussion is, do you believe in your heart that 8.3 is going to get to your goal of less than 7, or we said less than 6.5 with metformin and lifestyle alone? And if the answer is no, then I think the people who favor combination with therapy will say, well, don't think around and give them a drug that probably will, which has more than one drug in it. Well, I'd like to highlight one of the uh, key concepts that you said there, uh, which is uh, a potential downside with starting with monotherapy is the lack of intensification of therapy after treatment failure. Uh, so uh, in my mind, uh, the uh, caveat, the only caveat to what you had just described is uh, that if you have uh, built into your uh, clinical system a way to ensure that these patients do get follow-up, that there is appropriate intensification after failure of monotherapy, uh, and all of the systems requirements to ensure that, in fact, there is that dose escalation and then the further intensification with the second agent, uh, your point is well taken that most practices don't have such robust systems to assure that the patient does uh, in fact, uh, follow up, and then if they do follow up, the protocols exist uh, that uh, really do push us to intensify. So that uh, is a very well um, uh, put point, and I, I just felt the need to uh, reiterate that. Now, the other um, uh, question is around 
the tolerance and the tolerability uh, and the side effects. When you begin with combination therapy, you have always, you know, this question of, well, gee, won't they uh, possibly not adhere to that combination because you're starting two drugs? Uh, and that uh, increases the likelihood that they will either A, experience an intolerance to the medications, or B, experience a hypoglycemic event, uh, which has been shown independently to uh, be a risk factor for lack of adherence. So I wonder if you can comment a little bit about you know, that aspect of that option, uh, which is really uh, one of the, the possible downsides I can see people uh, thinking about uh, regarding starting with, with any combination. So, so this is this is a great question. So if if you will, uh, I want to adjust the sort of the theme of the question a little bit, because part of it is that you could actually use two drugs and run into a side effect uh, from one or maybe both. Then all of a sudden, your adherence to taking either of the drugs goes away, absolutely. And in terms of the combinations we have out there, certainly if one of the combinations is the sulfonylurea or one of them is a TZD, uh, you know, we have very well-known uh, issues with those medications, risk of hypoglycemia with sulfonylureas, weight gain with TZDs, maybe some other issues that does pose a problem. But, but the other side to that question is I think as the drugs uh, are come to us, newer drugs in particular, we start to look at them from a profile of action that um, extends not only with their blood glucose-lowering effect, I think we're trying to convince ourselves to, to find drugs which come with some additional benefits, limitation of weight gain or maybe weight loss, certainly uh, restriction or hopefully a total uh, uh, lack of any risk of hypoglycemia, maybe some cardiovascular benefits or at least improving blood pressure or lipids or something like that. And actually, the combination, as we start to think about it, you might not only have better improvements in blood glucose control, you might now have a combination that brings an additional benefit. So all of a sudden, you get better blood pressure we start to lose some weight uh, with our medicine, which we wouldn't have with the one drug alone. So, you know, so far we focused on uh, DPP-4 and metformin kind of in our comment, because that's certainly a common combination. But one could easily do metformin with the injected Encretin drug, a GLP-1 drug. Yes, it's an injection. Yes, that would be quite expensive. But you would have, you know, theoretically spectacular blood glucose control along with some weight loss, some blood pressure improvement, uh, some lipid improvement, uh, the things we think about with that medicine. Or, uh, again, you might try a combination of a sulfonylurea with metformin. It should be super cheap. It should be better at lowering blood glucose values. And even though we worry about hypoglycemia with sulfonylurea, I mean, the reality is it's not all that common if they're used properly. So I think all in all, we can worry about side effects, but we can also think about maybe we'll have added benefits that will improve adherence uh, with the combination over a single drug. Uh, I like the way you frame that. And uh, the uh, issue of uh, the uh, injectable and you bring that up as being a possible combination, I'd like to just explore just for a moment you know, the notion that um, you know, the uh, injectables include the uh, GLP-1 agonists but also include insulin. Uh, as uh, you know, possible uh, thinking uh, about uh, as as a, as a possible combination. So, uh, is there any role for insulin here? Uh, is there a is there a threshold 
whereby you think about an injectable GLP-1, and then I'm talking threshold A1C, that is. A threshold A1C that you think really should deserve an injectable as part of the initial thinking regarding the combination that you're going to be uh, using, uh, either at the GLP side or the insulin level side. Again, adjusting the case because we are presenting with an A1C of 8.2, but I'm just trying to isolate that variable out uh, for our listeners to to think about uh, going forward. Uh, Any thresholds for you that suggest that that initial approach should be uh, uh, different uh, based on the A1C value? Yeah, so this is a very important question for me because I live in a world where I'm prescribing injectables uh, daily to patients almost on a daily basis. And so uh, I view them as many, many more positives than negatives. And and certainly people come in with fears, but once we get through those fears, they end up being hugely important therapies with relatively few downsides in terms of just the injection. Having said that, you you know, we, we sort of have talked in part about this case based on guidelines. So the ADA guidelines, the ACE guidelines, and each of them integrate statements about people who newly present who are very hyperglycemic, typically a hemoglobin A1C of 9 or 9.5% and above, along with symptoms that suggest that they are um, uh, very significantly hyperglycemic, i.e. catabolic symptoms. People are losing weight. They're peeing multiple times a night so they can barely sleep. Women are having yeast infections, which are recurrent and hard to treat, sort of on and on. People feel terrible, profound fatigue. And I think most of the guidelines integrate that that kind of patient would be the kind of patient who should be started on insulin, maybe along with metformin, whether it's permanent or transient, sort of depends upon individual patients, but that would be sort of the kickoff to use insulin. I don't disagree with that. I've certainly seen many patients who present with very high levels of hemoglobin A1C who are not started on insulin to make some lifestyle change and they have incredible reversal of glucose toxicity and they do well on the oral agent. So I'm okay with the concept. I'm not sure it's an absolute. But I could now take your question the other way because if we get away from that classic patient who presents pretty sick and losing weight and really symptomatic and go to a more typical patient like our man right here is the implication, oh, my God, he's, he's not an insulin patient because his A1C is not that high and, and you know, he's not sick and we're going to use a bunch of drugs before we get to insulin. I'm not sure that that's accurate. Um, the ORIGIN trial, which is a trial that came out last year, published in the New England Journal, used uh, basal insulin very, very early in the course of type 2 diabetes some pre-diabetes or uh, in patients who had not seen more than one drug metformin. Some were on no drugs. The average hemoglobin A1C was 6.4, and it worked incredibly well. Uh, Their blood sugars were well-controlled, mostly on one injection a day for multiple years. They really didn't gain any weight. They really didn't have any problem with hypoglycemia. It's an option. I'm not advocating we do it, but I'm saying that we should present to patients all of the options that are out there. And there might be an occasional person who would rather take an injection and get on with their life as opposed to pop a bunch of pills and worry about the side effects of the pills. The the, the incretin injections uh, have some similarities because they're an injected therapy, so we'd have to go through sort of thinking about it and teaching about them. But the incretin therapies are probably um, more attractive in the concept of fairly early in the course of treating 
many patients with type 2 diabetes because their background is not only are we going to get some blood glucose improvement, that's quite dramatic. They're pretty, they're pretty good drugs in that regard. But also blood pressure improves a little bit, lipids improve a little bit. Certainly there are groups of patients that really uh, lose weight. And we're waiting with bated breath to know if that comes with cardiac protection. I mean, all of the studies are being done now to see if this we finally have a class of medicines that might actually bring not only um, the metabolic improvements we'd like in terms of risk factors, but translate down the way with true reductions in cardiovascular outcomes. And if they do, then I think if we were doing this case again, then we'd probably have four options, one drug, two drugs, surgery and or incretin therapy from the get-go, and that latter one could rise quickly to the top of the list. So, you know, I think uh, the, the, the theme of the ADA guidelines is talk to the patient, provide them all the different options, and then make your choice. And I could certainly make an argument in this patient that uh, an incretin drug would be not an inappropriate choice, either with metformin or maybe even in some patients as their first therapy, although that's still fairly atypical. So it really is a, a nice overview of all the different uh, treatment approaches here that are, that are possible. Uh, clearly, that would be constrained should the patient not have uh, health insurance. And I, I just uh, I do want to, again, make that point that clearly um, cost issues do prohibit uh, the use of, uh, of some of the options that you do describe. So with that, I would like to extend my uh, sincere uh, gratitude uh, to you, Dr. Leahy, for, for joining me. Uh, in the discussion of this fascinating case, uh, and we look forward to uh, the next opportunity to get together. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. This case and others can be found at betacellsindiabetes.org. Please visit the site regularly as we continue to enhance it, add additional cases, and provide content as it appears in the news, in the literature, and around the world.